I met Jamie back around 1981, and I was uh, working for Greater Cleveland Youth for Christ Campus Life at Chagrin Falls High School, where Jamie was, I believe, a junior then. Jamie had an odd build for a runner. He was not, not real tall, but had a lot of like baby poundage on him that made him just look like cute, like a cute little teddy bear. <laughs> had a great personality, very outgoing, very popular amongst his peers, um, but searching inside. He got involved in our small group discussion, Bible study with a bunch of his friends and uh, um, he prayed to receive Christ. Chagrin was kind of a party community, but you could tell as faith was becoming more prominent in his life, uh, guilt and conviction would be his friend that he probably didn't always like. And he'd get, oh man, I blew it, I blew it. I'm such a rotten guy. And we just worked through that. They went to Hillsdale College up in Michigan and Jamie would come home. I tried to connect them to Fellowship Bible Church. He got involved in the ministry and I had the joy of baptizing Jamie in 1984. And Kim was a part of the group, baptized her in 86. And then I married them in 88. We communicated a lot when he went to seminary in Chicago. Uh, he was a intern at Willow Creek Church. And then um, I had a privilege to go to his church in Detroit. Here was this young couple right out of a seminary. I, I believe Kim was pregnant at the time. We were looking for our first associate pastor that was going to help this church transition to the late 20th century. There was a lot of pain from a previous uh, pastor, and uh, I was um, one lonely human being at the age of 36, um, and that church was crushing us, and they were willing to come and uh, put themselves into that kind of a situation. And for nine years, we were, were incredibly close. That little huddled band of about 200 folk began to just explode. Uh, we went to 1600, and quite frankly, he was ready to lead his own deal, and he needed to, although I hated to see him go. Our search team, I think, was looking for three years. It could have been more. I was the chairman of the elders here at uh, Wortley Baptist Church. Wortley, at that particular moment, was in, I would call, a flatline position. Thankfully, Jamie had a very strong leadership skill. We would probably have been, say, around 500 people. And the last Sunday that Jamie was here, we almost doubled. And that was less than three years. We were attracted there because of his preaching. There was a handful, six of us guys who were kind of thinking maybe God was calling us to plant a church. So I sought out Jamie's counsel and, you know, I said, are you upset or concerned? We're going to plant another church in London. And he took me to the window and he pointed out and he said, I don't care if you plant right there. And he pointed to the house literally 50 feet from the church. London needs more gospel-oriented, Bible-proclaiming churches. And for me, that modeled right there what a kingdom-focused, you know, Christ-exalting pastor should be. So we planted in 2000, and uh, just this uh, past year, God enabled us to buy that very same building that we were commissioned and sent out of by Jamie and his elders. And so I walk by his office all the time, and I, I remember that like yesterday. And I'm sitting here in Wortley today. It does have a vibrant life. 
that it hasn't had for a long time. I really believe our church wouldn't exist today if God hadn't have brought Jamie and Kim to London. And God healed us so much through what Jamie and Kim poured into us. Sorry. I get a call, I'll never forget, from Pastor Goals, who was the pastor of Fellowship Bible. He had already had a retirement plan and process, and they said, we think we got our guy, and you're one of his references. It's Jamie Rasmussen. I had the joy of passing the baton on to him. I became minister at large, and he became senior pastor. And this is the facility that uh, he ministered in. He was kind of like the hometown boy, which could be a difficult place to be, but he did an amazing, amazing work at, at Fellowship Bible Church. Didn't know the guy at all. This short little guy comes out and starts preaching, and I'm thinking, was this going to be any good? And it was good. Not only did he know how to teach, he knew how to relate. He knew how to be authentic. During his time, the church uh, increased significantly, probably close to doubling in size. So, Jamie, this is your um, 35th anniversary for trusting Christ and your 30th anniversary for being in ministry. Well, Jamie, uh, You've been down this path for quite a while. Congratulations, Jamie, on 30 years. And Kim, I don't want to forget you because very few people know the cost that a pastor's wife and a pastor's children have paid for the church. Jamie, you know I've never been a pastor, and I'm glad I've never been a pastor. Pastoring is not easy work. With the same grace you've given people, keep receiving yourself. God has great things in store for the people of your church. So minister to them faithfully, preach the word. And I pray that God will give you another 30 years of fruitful, faithful ministry. Keep doing the good work of faith. I love you, buddy. Love you, Jamie. I'm grateful for it, Jamie. I love you, brother. Love you, brother. sit down. I am uh, I'm Dave Hall, and God has allowed me to be the chairman of the elder board this year, and I endorse this video, and I can see you do too. If you're here for the first time, you may say, I have no idea who they're talking about. I've never seen him. They didn't show him in the video. I don't know anything about him, so let me just put this in perspective. We spent three years looking for a pastor to come and replace Daryl Del Hosea, who was the pastor here for 25 years. And at the end of three years, it was clear, as clear could be, that Jamie Rasmussen was the man God had for our church. And now after eight years, as you can see, uh, we have the same opinion as every one of these people up here had. None of these are paid actors, <laughs> as far as I know. But they feel exactly the same way. Jamie has brought to us a sincere uh, uh, message every month, every week. And uh, there are certain things, there are three things I'd like to say about Jamie that, that stand out in my mind and, and I think many of you have seen. The first is his leadership. I mean, some people are good preachers, but not everybody is a good leader. Jamie is a great leader. 
He has great vision. He's out ahead of everybody else in where the church is going and what we need to do. And thirdly, and most importantly to me, he is an anointed man of God. He takes the word of God into his heart and preaches it out into our hearts. And that is not something just anybody can do. And it has blessed me, and I'm sure it has blessed many of you too. So I'd just like to ask Jamie and Kim to come up. Kim is no small part of this organization, this team. Uh, she is not just a pastor's wife. She is an encourager. She is a, she, there, many things are run by her. Uh, many things don't get by her. Um, <laughs> but they are, they are a blessing to our church. I just like to pray for them. And then Jamie's going to preach, but I'm guessing he has some other words because he did not know anything about this. This is, this is a great surprise, right? Okay, let me just pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, we come here every week to honor you in everything we do and say. Today, Lord, let us just honor Jamie and Kim. Let us honor their family and the commitment they've made to minister to us in good times and in bad. Lord, we just praise you for their commitment to you, their commitment to one another, and their commitment to us. We thank you that you have given them to us. And Lord, this is not the end. This is the beginning of another era. We thank you that uh, Jamie and I on Friday shared the same day in which we uh, trusted Christ, and uh, it's a blessing. And so I just uh, pray you'll bless his message and uh, this, this entire day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very moved, to be frank with you. I, uh, I, I had no idea that uh, this was coming. I, I've never, ever had anybody celebrate my uh, spiritual birthday. And so this, uh, I'm, I'm almost speechless. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very moved. Uh, you don't know any of those people on there, but I, I do. And they really are guys that have been amazing to me over the years and that God has used to um, form my soul and to draw me closer to him. And uh, again, I'm just, just moved in my spirit to, uh, to, to go on that journey for seven minutes and be reminded of uh, all that God has done. And I'm grateful that he saved my soul. And I thank you all for uh, celebrating that with me. And uh, it's wonderful. I, to have some levity to this, really to, to show you um, why I needed to be saved, it was funny. Kim flew in last night uh, at 11 p.m. She was in Florida uh, seeing her parents. And, uh, and, and, you know, she flew in and Abby picked her up. And then this morning I'm up and on Sunday mornings, I'm really focused and, you know, all morning long. I mean, she's getting ready. She says, I'm going to come to church with you. Well, she never drives me to church and, and, and she's bugging me about outfits and shoes. And I mean, really she is, she's, she goes, Hey, does this pair look pair? Is this pair, you know, leggings and all this. And finally I, I said to her, I said, honey, I'm no offense, but I, I have to preach in front of 2,000 people here soon. And I, I said, I'm really not focusing on leggings. And I, I apologize. I'm sorry. Because I, I wasn't very gentle. And uh, that's why I needed to be saved. And now you know why I need to be sanctified. And we're going to talk about that too. So bless you guys. Thank you for that. And uh, this will be a, a day I'll never forget. So let's dive in uh, to uh, God's word and uh, let's pray before we do. Father, thank you for uh, salvation. That, that's what will be on my mind, Lord, all day. It's been on my mind all week on how March 11th, 1981, 
uh, you saw fit before the foundation of the world to call me into your kingdom and to reveal your son to me and to even give me the gift of faith so that as one singer said so well years ago, I could lift my hand so you could lift me up. Uh, but even the lifting of my hand was done by you. God, I thank you for that. I thank you, thank you, thank you that you have saved me and that you've saved many, Lord, here in our church. And uh, Lord, for the ones you haven't, who you have yet to reveal your grace and your forgiveness and your kindness to them in Jesus, God, I pray, uh, as Paul did in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened, they might know the hope to which they've been called. And so God, uh, do that in us, we pray. As we unpack a bit of your fruits of your spirit, God, give us wisdom. As I pray often, God, may this be your word to your people. And anything that I say that's of the flesh, may that not get through. And we pray this in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. amen. Oh, okay, so uh, I, I was sitting in my home office this week and I was <laughs> kind of smiling to myself thinking, really, really, I gotta preach on gentleness, <laughs> gentleness. I, I, I'm not alone. If any of you men, most of you had to speak on gentleness, you would feel very much like I do right now because here's the problem with the topic before us today and that is that when the average person thinks of gentleness, tell me if this isn't true, they usually think of soft, flowery, wishy-washy kinds of things. I, I want you to, in your mind's eye, just ask yourself, what do you equate with gentleness in your life right now? What do you equate? I, here's, what I, here's my list. I think of kittens. They're gentle. I, I think of the permanent press cycle on the washing machine. That's gentle. I, I think of a gently flowing stream and spring flowers. I think of a kind old grandfather cuddling a, a, a grandchild. That's, that's gentle. I think of soft-serve ice cream, hamsters, arts and crafts, teddy bears, and, and a short walk on a nature trail. That's what I think of when I think of gentle. And it's not that those things are wrong. Those are actually good things to think of. It's just to think about this with me. Gentleness is hardly ever seen as a robust gritty, take you somewhere kind of trait. No, by the very nature of how we use the word, we use it in the more softer, milder aspects of life. And to be sure that this is true, tell me if this isn't true, the word gentleness is hardly ever used in the context of business, sports, politics, academia, and leadership. Isn't that interesting? I've been to, to sporting events, I've done you know, talks and been to talks on leadership, I've been through academia, hardly ever heard the word gentle or gentleness used. I mean, really, it's a word that's reserved for lulling somebody to sleep and putting them in a comatose state. That's what gentleness is about. In fact, one could argue that somebody in a coma is awfully gentle, and that's too bad because we tend to see this word this way. And, and here's what we need to, to come to grips with right now. And that's that it's not that all the things that I just listed a minute ago, from kittens to soft serve ice cream, shouldn't be associated with gentleness. They should. It's just that gentleness, as we're gonna see today, according to the Bible, is a much more rich, more robust thing than many of us uh, equate it with today. Uh, gentleness, is one of the fruits of God's holy, powerful, active Holy Spirits, and, and, and something he's deposited in our spirit as followers of him. Now watch this, in order to take people somewhere. 
I'm going to submit to you in a few minutes here that gentleness is a trait that's supposed to be in motion. It, 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 it guides people somewhere. It's not something that's just to make us feel good and lull us to sleep. Gentleness has more teeth than most people realize. So here's how Galatians 5 says it. But the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. So I want to begin today by blowing the lid off of many of our preconceived notions of gentleness, and I want to define it in a way that does justice to how the Bible postures this word before us. And here would be a good definition of gentleness, and this is going to surprise some of you, but this, I'll show you in a second, is, is fully biblical, and that is that gentleness is a relational trait, to be sure, that straddles the extremes of anger on the one end and indifference on the other. That's our working definition of gentleness. It's a relational trait that straddles the extremes of anger and indifference. Now, the word gentle and its corollary gentleness appears about only 15 times in the New Testament, about 20 times in the Old Testament. And as many of you know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. That's how God inspired it 2,000 years ago. And even though the word only appears about 15 times in the New Testament, uh, we actually know a lot about the word because we have the whole history of the Greco-Roman world in Jesus' day uh, to learn from. And you see, when the Greeks would use this word gentle in their day and age, it contained a couple of word pictures that I think help us understand uh, what's behind this word. Uh, the first word picture for gentleness from the Greek world is that it was used to describe the taming of a wild animal. We can all picture that, right? So you have a lion or a tiger or an elephant that's, that's wild and out of control, and through taming it... It doesn't become docile or comatose. It simply becomes easier to manage, easier to guide. It's now tame. That's what the Greeks thought of when they thought of gentleness. And then I found this one interesting. They also associated gentleness in their mind's eye with agriculture as opposed to war. You're saying, what's that about? Well, what they're basically saying is that when they thought of gentleness, they thought of a guy spreading seed in his or her field, spreading seed, as opposed to a guy using that same hand to cut off somebody's head, because <laughs> that wouldn't be very gentle. And so agriculture as opposed to war. Eventually, this word would be used to describe human beings, and because of the word pictures they had, they described human beings that were not brusque or rough or given to sudden anger but a human being who is composed in his or her demeanor, which is why the English would eventually hijack this word and refer to some men as gentlemen, because they are more composed, even under stress. And in fact, the Greeks would end up prizing this, this trait of gentleness as a social virtue in human relationships. It was a virtue associated with a high-minded man or woman uh, who rose above the rest. And yet, as I said earlier, what's most important for us to understand about the Greek concept of this word, because we're going to bring it to the New Testament here in just a second, is that this was never intended to be a standstill kind of trait. It was never intended to be lackadaisical or lethargic or slothful or anything like that. It was always intended to be the kind of trait that propelled another person forward when you would use it in relationship with them. Or, as we're going to see in a second here, when God uses it with us. And this is why our definition of gentleness is so important. It's a relational trait that straddles the extremes of anger and indifference. And maybe now you can see what we're getting at with that. 
Gentleness looks like this. If you're kind of a, a person who's straddling something in your life, and you're straddling it, you're trying to walk the line between it, and gentleness comes along and says, I'm not going to give in to, to being overly angry, angry on this side of it. I'm not going to give in to indifference and uncaring on this side of it. No, I'm going to walk that line between the two as I relate to this person in front of me. And then what you do is that with that trait, you say, and I'm also going to move toward them and forward with them with this gentleness that God has blessed me with and given me. That's the idea behind gentleness. So how do you know if you're gentle or not? How do you know if the fruit of the spirit of gentleness is in you or not? It's not rocket science, gang. If you find yourself being overly harsh, judgmental, angry, and overbearing, I got news for you. You're not gentle. You're an idiot, but you're not gentle. And conversely, if you find yourself appearing to be gentle, and we all know people like this, appearing to be gentle, but it's only because you're indifferent, uncaring, and detached, I got news for you. You're not gentle. You're just faking it. See, gentleness straddles those two extremes. It says, I'm not going to be overbearing and in your face and trying to push you to do something you don't want to do. And at the same time, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm not going to be uncaring and indifferent. No, I'm going to be right here in the middle of it, open to you with all that God has given to me. That's the idea behind gentleness. Now, let's now turn to the New Testament. Because the New Testament, with this whole tidal wave of, of, of the Greek understanding of gentleness behind it, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, would eventually pick up the pen and write about gentleness. And who was the first person they used to describe this word gentle as? Does anybody know? Jesus. By the way, if a pastor ever asks you a question open-ended like that, 90% of the time, if you say Jesus, it's the right answer. <laughs> My kids learned that years ago, right? How was Sunday school? Jesus. Oh, that's all I need to hear. All right, good. <laughs> but it was Jesus. The, the, the Bible would come along, and it would all of a sudden pick up this word that was so rich in the Greek language, and they would say Jesus was humble and gentle in how he interacted with others. He straddled perfectly the extremes of anger and indifference. And then they would use this word to describe the Christian community. That's, we're going to see that's really challenging. A community of Christ followers who know how to relate to each other with a gentleness that avoids being overly harsh, but also a gentleness that stays in the ring with another person. And then the New Testament writers would even describe how we should posture ourselves to the outside world around us. And you get it. They would use this word gentleness again. And all the while, this word remained a relational trait in the New Testament flowing from agape love seen in how we think, feel, and act to those around us. It's gentleness. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, just grab onto this definition because this will take you very far in life. It's a relational trait that straddles the extremes of anger and indifference. Now, in our time remaining... I want to add some meat to the bones of this understanding of biblical gentleness. And I want to note three very practical things which the Bible teaches us about gentleness and even how gentleness can and should become more a part of our spiritual and relational DNA as followers of Jesus. And the first thing that we must note is this, and that is that our gentleness comes 
from Jesus. Or if you wanted to put it in the imperative, our gentleness must come from Jesus. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, really, really, that's your profound point on gentleness? That's your first point that it needs to come from Jesus? But here's the deal, gang. I can't tell you how many Christians I observe, and even my own life at times throughout the week, in which through our behavior and the way we're functioning as Christians, it shows we just don't get this. In other words, here's how we approach gentleness. As I've been telling you, this is how we approach many of the fruits of the Spirit, is that we look at the Bible and it says, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, and you're going to be tempted to wake up tomorrow morning and say, well, I better be gentle today. I'm going to work really hard to be gentle. In fact, pastor said that it's not being overly angry, it's not being indifferent, so I'm going to try to stay in that middle zone, and all day I'm going to be gentle. And, and, and who's the emphasis on all day long? You. <laughs> As I've told you, this is not a to-do list for Christians. See, that's what Christians do with gentleness. We make it a flesh-driven, flesh-motivated entity in which we say that we're not going to avoid, we're going to be gentle in our lives. And here's what you're going to find if that's the way you want to function as a Christian. It is hit or miss at best. You have a couple of victories because your flesh is strong, but then because you're fallen, you're going to have quite a few defeats. And before you know it, you're going to say, well, I guess I'm not really that gentle. No, why don't you try it this way? Look at how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 10.1. This is the way Paul applied gentleness. He says, now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Now, now, notice a couple of things about this passage here, because there's some richness here that a lot of people do a drive-by on. Uh, notice first that gentleness, indeed, is a relational trait. And we know that because Paul says, and he wasn't always very gentle, he says, when I'm face-to-face -face with you, I am meek and gentle. So isn't that interesting? He's basically saying, when I write you letters, I'm going to be a tough guy. <laughs> but when I'm face-to-face, -face, like, like having to organically relate to you, I'm going to put on gentleness. I find that very interesting. And then he says that the gentleness I have is the gentleness of Christ. Now, there's two ways to take this. And I think one way would be a huge mistake. The other way, I think, would be spot on. We can take this as either an imitative gentleness, in which we're just imitating the gentleness of Jesus, mimicking it, or we can take it as a derived gentleness, a gentleness that we get from being with Jesus and empowered by him. And I would submit to you, because some of you are tempted right now, I haven't told your story yet, and so you're tempted to like get ADD on me and start thinking about lunch. Don't do that. You're going to want to dial into this. I'll tell you some stories here in a minute. You're going to want to dial into this. And that is that that difference between a derived gentleness versus an imitative gentleness is huge, right? I mean, one of them is simply about copycat, while the other is about being a sister where the water comes in and you soak it in and it fills you up. Uh, one of these is about being a voyeur, where you just look to Jesus and imitate him. The other is about being a vessel, where his power fills you up. One is about emulating what you see in Jesus. The other is about emptying yourself and allowing Christ to fill you up. Give me a head nod that you see the difference there. Big difference between imitating. I think what Paul is saying here. When he says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, is saying tap into Jesus, trust in him in such a way that his gentleness becomes experienced by you. 
And then you will just find yourself naturally <laughs> or supernaturally being gentle with others. Now, the reason we know that this is exactly what he's saying is because Jesus taught us this directly. Look at Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. This is Jesus speaking. He says, come to me. Pause right there. Could he be more clear? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I just don't think this is an imitative thing going on here, do you? This is relational. He's saying, come into my sphere. Get to know me as your Savior and your Lord, the one who who made you and created you and, and wants to be the lover of your life. Come to me and then learn from me as you experience me and learn how I interact with you. And then guess what? As you go out and start to relate to your kids and your grandkids and your spouse and your coworkers, your friends, your service providers, as you do all of that, they just might see some of the gentleness of me in you. And again, I just think if you guys don't hear anything today, just hear that as you spend more time with the Jesus who truly is, and as you allow his gentleness to invade your soul, you'll find yourself starting to be that way as well. I'll never forget the first breakthrough I had with this, because I always have many breakthroughs. You guys saw a little bit about my life before the message here. I was uh, pastoring in Detroit, and you saw my pastor Kevin there. He's such a wonderful guy. And I got to tell you, I, I really, 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 I know some of you don't believe me, I really was messed up as a young pastor. I had anxiety attacks and depression, and I, 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 was, I was really primed to be an addict. Thank God he protected me from all of that stuff, and so I, I didn't get any addictions, but I, I was really messed up, and my, my church knew it. And, you know, early on, they said, we love you, we embrace you, we accept you, but we're going to help you, and you're going to get some therapy. And so they got me in counseling. And for two years in Detroit, I saw a wonderful therapist by the name of Bill, Bill Downey. And Bill has now gone on to be with the Lord, and, and he died a few years ago. He was an older guy, an ex-pastor. He had a, a white beard. It was the father figure that I never had. And, and, and the beautiful thing about Bill is because he recognized that, that, that I was a thinker and, and you know, constantly analyzing things, he, he recognized he didn't need to tell me what to do as much as he needed to help me discover what to do. And that's the mark of a good counselor is that they ask a lot of questions and they kind of box you in a corner in your thinking and feeling structure to help you discover things that maybe God wants you to discover. And I'll never forget one day back in about 93, 94, I walked into his office and I just started unloading him on all the things that I messed up on that week. And I said, you know, I did this and I did that and I yelled at Kim and I was impatient with the babies and da, da, da. And, and, and he looked at me and he just, the only thing he said was, he said, I, I just wish that you could learn to be gentle with yourself. And you guys know me. I'm not a puppy dog. I look back at him and I said, really, that's the best you got today, Bill? <laughs> I said, that just sounds like psychobabble to me. He said, really? I said, yeah, it does. I'm gentle with yourself. I, said, I can get that on Oprah. I said, I, I, don't, I don't need you telling me that. He looked at me and he said, can I ask you a few questions? And I thought to myself, no, but I, I'll go ahead. And he said to me, is Jesus your savior, a gentle savior? I wasn't going to answer no. <laughs> so I said, yeah, there, there's an aspect of Jesus in the way he relates to me that is amazingly gentle. He said, and are you gentle with your flock? 
I said, well, I, yes, there are times that I know God's calling me to be very gentle with my flock. He says, so let me get this right. Um, you have a savior who's gentle with you to the point that you're willing to be gentle with your flock, but somehow if I suggest that you should be gentle with yourself, it's psychobabble. And he had me exactly where he wanted me. And for the next hour, we talked about how all throughout the day, I have this self-talk in my life in which I'm constantly beaten up on myself. I'm constantly a taskmaster myself. I'm constantly saying, there's really some old tapes from before, but I'm constantly saying, you can do better. No, no, no. And, and, and I'm never, ever gentle with myself. And I got to tell you, that was life transforming for me in the 1990s. It completely changed how I saw Kim, how I saw my kids, how I called my, my church. Don't ever forget, gang, we're called to be gentle, even at times with ourselves, and our gentleness comes directly from Jesus Christ. And the more time we spend with him and see him for who he is, the more we're gonna straddle that, that, that fine line between being overly angry and indifferent on the other end. Now, a bit more quickly, because I do want us to spend a few minutes before we go on our third implication, because it's really the mountaintop. Uh, before that, notice with me a second practical outpouring of biblical gentleness, and that is that our gentleness expresses itself in community. It expresses itself in community. Simply put, because gentleness is a relational trait, and this is important, gang, we must realize that it is rarely, if ever, seen alone it's always manifest in the realm of relational Christ-like community. So the point is, is that it's no good saying that you're a gentle person because somehow you feel gentle in your spirit if it doesn't display itself in the way that you relate to others. Amen? That was pathetic. Amen? I mean, I actually hear this all the time. I hear people say, you know, I'll see somebody treat somebody like dirt in the church or, or, or just be completely complacent to another person in church and I'll comment on it and somebody else will say, oh, but deep down that person really is a kind and gentle person. Have you ever heard somebody say that? And, and the problem is, and I don't want to be too harsh here because this is a sermon on gentleness, but the problem is, is that from a biblical standpoint, that does not fly. Because the proof of gentleness is always in the pudding, and the pudding is relationship. And you can't weasel out of it. The reason I know this is true, and it really wasn't hard in my study this week, but I looked up all 15 occurrences of gentleness in the New Testament, and then I looked at all 20 in the Old Testament and spent some time in front of them. There's not one instance, not one, in which the gentleness is used outside of relationship. Real quickly, just look at this. I mean, here's some examples here. Look at Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul the Apostle, implore you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling which, which you have been called, with humility and, say it with me, gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for, say this with me, one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So gentleness is equated with one another. And then look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 or 13. Uh, so as those who have been chosen of God. Now, for, for those of you who have a more Calvinist theology, one commentator pointed out something fascinating here. He, he said that gentleness is tied to our election. That when you were elected into God's kingdom before the foundation of the world. Part of that election is that someday you would be made like Jesus. 
in his gentleness. So those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. Again, there it is. And again, these are just not just two odd examples. Every one of them are like this. Your gentleness is never a solo act. It's not a one-man show. At the very least, it's a duet seen in how you interact with one another. And it's always validated in how it's expressed in community. Otherwise, it's just a dormant trait that means really nothing. And so add up where we've come from. Gentleness comes from Jesus as opposed to our fleshly human nature. It expresses itself in community, never isolated from others. And thirdly, but oh so crucial, our gentleness has the power to change others. And obviously what I mean by this is that our gentleness that Jesus puts in us has the power to see Jesus change others. But the reason that I put it like I did is because he does it through us. I want you to look with me at a passage that some of you have read before, but you've never seen it in light of gentleness and transformation. Look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. This is really rich. Paul's speaking to Timothy, his protege, and he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when, when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And then give me another click here. One more click. Yeah, there it is. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And, and, and so don't miss what's happening here. This is a passage that many of us do a drive-by with, and, and it's unfortunate. Uh, Paul is beginning by telling Timothy there that when wayward believers are in his life, that's the context. You can read about it later. He's talking about wayward believers, people in the church who are once strong and once doing well, but now have gone off the deep end and are giving these guys grief. When wayward, backslidden believers are in their lives, he says they can actually come to their senses, they can repent, they can change, they can escape the evil one's grasp, in other words, they can fully change in their lives if and as the more mature believers around them are kind, instructive, patient, and have gentleness leading the way in their attempts to correct them. That's exactly, that's the recipe for transformation. And I'm gonna suggest to you in a minute, I don't think we understand this very well. I don't think that that's the way that we approach erring, gone off the deep end, driving us nuts kind of people. We don't allow the muscle of gentleness to be the force that God wants it to be. But it's exactly what God's plan is. Because you see, it's right here where we confront a very real dilemma in our thinking and our understanding of relationships and people and even gentleness. And here's the dilemma that we're confronting right now. If some of us are really honest with ourselves right now, you might be thinking something like this. Okay, Jamie, I get it, I get it. Gentleness is straddling of the extreme of anger and indifference you know, can be a powerful, motivating force. But I gotta tell you, Jamie, there are plenty of times in which I'm not gentle at work or with my children, and it tends to work out just fine. The deal goes through, the kid behaves, and it wasn't because I was gentle, no, I would argue it was precisely because I was forceful. 
that it all went so well. So how do you make sense of that? That's what some of you might be thinking right now. At least if I was you, I'd be thinking that. And it's a good question. It's one we need to wrestle with. And one of the first things we need to, to recognize, if you'd all ever think like this, is that there's a fallacy in our starting premise here, our starting pushback, and that is that we're assuming that gentleness is not a force. But we're assuming that we have a force within us with our kids and at work, and that we're going to make something happen, and that when we hear the word gentle, this is my whole introductory point, when we hear the word gentle, we think of kittens and soft serve ice cream and things like that. We kind of think gentleness is just sort of pulling back not moving forward. We don't see gentleness as a force. But the reality is the Bible disagrees with you. And so once you see that, you see that really the issue here is not should I be gentle or should I be forceful. That's not the issue because gentleness is a force. The issue becomes, now watch this, which show of force should I use in my interaction with others? Should I use the force of spirit-infused gentleness or should I use the force of me-infused flesh or whatever it is? That's really the choice we have before us. Because as we've already noted, both will probably get the desired behavior change around you. But what I want you to wrestle with, and we're going to wrestle with this for the remaining 13 minutes we have, what I want you to wrestle with is simply this. Which one is better? Right? Right? Men especially. Come on, I'm looking at some of you men. Paul, you, you got to wrestle with this, brother. We, we all, I'm not picking on you because I know anything, though I do know some things. The reality is, is that we all need to wrestle with this. I need to wrestle with this as a man because it's obvious. I mean, I can get things done by force. Can you relate to that? I can get things done that way. I can give orders. I can do, give directives. I can even get in someone's face and, and I can get things done. And it's all generated by the flesh. It's all generated by my, my fleshly human energy. And there's times where I do that. Or I can allow the Holy Spirit to rise up within me with a spirit of gentleness, straddling, anger on the one hand, indifference on the other, moving into somebody's life with the force of the Holy Spirit through gentleness. And honestly, you have to ask yourself, which one am I willing to use? Because both will get things done. But one of them has a terrible, terrible, terrible consequence to it. Uh, John Newton is somebody that all of you are familiar with, even if you don't, didn't know it. John Newton wrote that amazing hymn, We Love Amazing Grace. You might not have known that John Newton, who lived about 200 years ago, um, was a hard-nosed slave trader, a man's man, a sailor, in the early years of his life. And then he had a profound conversion to Christ and eventually became an Anglican clergyman. And at one point in his journals and his letters, he wrote this. I put it on your outline because it's really worth keeping. Uh, he wrote this. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made? Ooh. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying it's possible to gain your cause. And it's possible to silence your adversary. I mean, we're good at that, many of us. I mean, we are strong in our rhetoric. We're extroverted people. Or if we're introverts, we're very manipulative. We're good at doing that in our lives. We can gain our cause and silence our adversary. But if doing that causes us to lose a humble, tender frame of spirit in which Jesus delights in, and which the promise of his presence given to us is made, then the question is, 
did we really win anything? And I would also say, for those of you who have ever tried this, <laughs> there's times where, again, you can force people to do what you want to do by the force of your own human strength, and they might do it, but are they any different for doing it? Probably not. It's just they're just doing what you want them to do. But inside, they're thinking, you're a jerk, <laughs> and they're just doing it to get you off their back. They haven't really experienced any life change, whereas gentleness truly does. I'm going to close by telling you a story that I think will be very meaningful to, to many of you where you're at right now, very meaningful. And, and, I, and I warn you, it's a powerful story, a very real and raw story. I asked my daughter, Abby, this week if I could share it because it involves her. And I'm very, very thankful and proud that she allowed me to do it. Um, when, you know, when we moved here eight years ago, we've made it all look glorious, right? I mean, I was in Cleveland, my home church, and came here to Scottsdale. But many of you know that I moved here with a kid in eighth grade, a kid in 10th grade, and a kid in 11th grade. And when I told them that we were pulling them out of their wonderful rural school outside of the village of Chagrin Falls and moving to Scottsdale, let's just say they weren't jumping up and down for joy. And, and you know, the search team, some of you don't know this, but the search team, when we decided to come here, actually bought all the kids iPods. Do you remember iPods? I mean, that was huge. Like, they didn't have an iPod living in my house, you know, not because I'm against them. I just couldn't afford them. And, 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 and they bought them all iPods. And my daughter, Abby, said, they're trying to buy us off. And I said, well, I said, you can give it back if you want. No, I'm keeping it, Dad. So, you know, they, they came here, but they came here under duress. And and I've been proud of each of my kids, Hannah, Abby, and Paul, but they've, they've each struggled in their own way. It was not an easy move for them. And, and Abby um, went through some real dark times um, about six, seven years ago uh, when she was in uh, high school going into college. And um, I'm not going to tell you what the nature of the issues were because that's personal and private to us, but, you know, she, she was struggling with a lot of issues in her life. And, uh, and we knew about it, Kim and I did, but we were kind of hoping, as many of you do with your kids, that they're held at bay. And after Abby graduated from high school, she was working up in Prescott for the summer, getting ready to go to college, and we got a call from the family that uh, she was working with up there, a wonder, wonderful Christian family, and they said, we've seen some things that concern us. And when they shared what the things were, they were the things that Kim and I um, were kind of concerned about too, and I, and I knew I needed to drive up to Prescott and deal with this. And being a man, a father, a pastor, I knew I needed to drive up to Prescott and save my daughter. I knew right then she probably would have to skip college for a year because we really needed to work on these issues, but I, I knew she needed rescuing, <laughs> and I knew that I could do it. As I was getting ready to go up to Prescott, um, I called Larry Crabb. Larry's a friend and a mentor, and whenever I'm in crisis mode, I call those closest to me, and I, and I called him simply to say, pray for me, and I explained a little bit of the situation. And I'll never forget what happens next. Larry said, can I give you one piece of advice? I said, sure. He said, um, if I know you, you're going to drive up to Prescott so that you can save and rescue your daughter. He said, I really, I really want to encourage you not to do that. He said, one, the journey that she's on is going to be a long journey, and there's really no rescuing to be done right now. He said, secondly, my guess is she's a pretty smart kid. She knows what to do. She's just really stuck on how to do it. And then he floored me. He said, what she needs from you is that she needs to connect to the heart of her father and nothing more. He said what she needs to feel after you spend time with her in Prescott is that her dad listened, that he cared, that he prayed, that he asked some questions, and that he drove back down the hill. And he said, and if you try to fix her and rescue her and do all these things, he said, it might work, but it's not going to help 
her in the long run. She has to journey this with the Lord and with you as her father. I got to tell you, I drove all the way up to Prescott with that just like, I mean, and, and I said to Larry, the last thing I said to him is I said, I don't know how to do that. Like some of you men would say, I, I, don't, I don't even know what that means. I don't know how to do that. And, and he wouldn't let me out of that. He said, yes, you do. He said, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. He didn't quote any of the fruits of the Spirit, but I thought of them. He said, of course you know how to do it. Dig deep, dig deep. Release the Spirit in your time with your daughter, and it will go just fine. I picked up Abby, and there was a day I don't think either of us forget. In fact, I asked her this week, I said, do you remember that time? I oh, yes, Dad, I do. And so I drove into Prescott, and, and, and we, you guys have been to Prescott. We were deep in the woods there, and we drove just to this out-of-way little, I don't know if it was a park. It was just a trailhead. And we sat there for three hours. And again, I just resisted the urge to try to fix her. And I listened. And there are times where the Silence was deafening. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, it just, I felt like turning on the radio or something. It was, just, it was just deafening. And I listened and I asked questions. And see, here's where it gets really chaotic because there are times that I asked questions and I didn't like the answers. You ever experienced that, men? Like, I, well, I didn't want to... See, see, Abby, if you would only think this way... If you only do, and, and, I, that's why, I, but I resisted all of that. I, I listened, I understood. I inserted a few things. And then I prayed with her. And I knew we had some decisions to make, but I knew that they would come. And I drove back down the hill. The journey for Abby uh, was, you know, a long journey from there. And she's doing amazingly well as a, a wonderful, godly young woman today. But, but I believe, and we've never really talked about it, I believe that me going up there and connecting with her as her daughter, uh, probably, I know, was the best advice I've ever been given. And without even knowing it at the time, it really was what we're talking about today going on. It was the fruit of the spirit of gentleness, not, not overreacting in anger, not overreacting in indifference. I could have just said, well, kid, hey, you're 21. Deal with it yourself. No, none of that. Actually, she's 18. Still an adult. Uh, deal with it yourself. I, I, I didn't. I, I straddled that day, anger and indifference. I moved toward my daughter. And, and, and without trying to fix anything, I allow God's spirit to do his work. I hope Abby doesn't mind me sharing this. At one point, uh, we were discussing these things, and I don't know if you remember this girl, but we were uh, having another conversation in another parking lot, uh, and, and at one point I said to her, I said, because again, I'm a pastor, I said, where's God in all of this? And she looked at me and she said, I don't even know if I believe in him anymore. Oh my gosh, I mean, you could say anything to me, but as a pastor, to say, I mean, you can ask Kim. I came home and I said, Abby's an atheist. I said, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. And Kim said, you know, do, do you ever think that maybe she's confused? Do you, ever think she, do you ever think she doesn't really mean that? I said, yeah, I thought all that, but she said it. She said it. And again, I'm an apologist. Like, I, I wanted to just say, well, read this book and read that. And here's the cosmological argument for God, the teleological argument for God. Here's Aquinas' argument for God, you know, and, and, and all that. And I, I, I thought, but I didn't do any of that. I just took it on the chin. Men, can you do that? You take it on the chin. And you say, well, what does she need from me right now? She probably doesn't need the reaction of anger or being indifferent and pulling out of the ring. She probably needs me to be there as her dad. And I can tell you right now, she loves the Lord. She loves God. And uh, she's walking with him to this day as best that she can and uh, is doing a good job. And again, I just, you know, last word on this. I don't always do this. 
I, I mean, I had that event with Abby, and then about a year later, I don't think he'd mind me sharing this, Lucas called me. Give a hand raise if you know Lucas. Uh, Lucas is our, some of you don't, you're newer. Lucas was our, one of our star young pastors here. He was a worship pastor, eventually became a teaching pastor, a campus pastor, and, and eventually now is pastoring a, a phenomenal church in Toronto, Canada. And Lucas called me once years ago, uh, shortly after this time with Abby, and he was in crisis. Again, I won't tell you what the issue was. It, it didn't preclude him from ministry, but he was in crisis. And he said, I, can I meet with you right now? And it was like a Friday morning. I'm like, oh, crud, I'm at my sermon. But yes, I, I, I just bought people. So I, I met him at Wildflower, and I heard what his crisis was. And I, and I don't even remember doing this. Men, this is how insidious it is. I don't even remember being like this. But, but, but about a, a day later, he called me. And I thought he was calling me to thank me, the little ingrate, but he wasn't. He was <laughs> calling to tell me that when I heard his problem at Wildflower, that I didn't really listen to his heart. I'm like, what are you, a woman? He goes, I didn't really listen to your heart. And he goes, and I, and, I, and I didn't respond gently that I just tried to fix him and tell him what to do, and he already knew what to do. I felt like I was having a conversation with Kim, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And, I, and again, I wanted to be reactive to that, right? I wanted to say, well, hey, dude, okay, you called me on a Friday. I was in teaching mode. And by the way, everything I said to you, if you do, it'll work. <laughs> but then I stopped myself and I thought, what did he really want from me? What did he want? He wanted a friend. He wanted somebody to be with him. He wanted somebody to journey with him. And he called his pastor. And to be fair, I failed him that day. I did. I gave him great advice. And I failed him because that's not what he wanted. And he was right. And I did apologize to him. I said, dude, I, you know, you're right. I, 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 I'm sorry. But I'll never forget that. So the point is, is that there's times that we're going to have great success with this. And there's times where we're not going to have great success. And the reality is, is that as we allow the spirit to be unleashed within us, it'll be a good thing. So here's my closing question to you and we're done. What's it going to be for you? Some of you here today have situations right before you right now in which there are people in your life this week whom God is calling you to interact with and you really do have a choice. Which force are you going to use? <laughs> the force of God's Holy Spirit working in you as you straddle your anger and your indifference, moving toward another person in Christ-like relationality, or is it going to be the same old, same old? Good advice that you might give to somebody, but advice that at the end of the day, as good as it is, is not nearly as powerful as you present with the person that you love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the lessons that you give us from your word and in life. And Lord, when we're willing to trust you with everything in us and move toward others in courage and love. And God, I thank you that this fruit of the spirit of gentleness is so far beyond what many of us have thought it is, that it really truly is an amazing, amazing trait that you have given us to be a motivating force in the lives of those around us if we will but unleash it as you intended it. So God, help us to do that. God, there are some of us here going today and at campus, at Cactus and Mountains Valley and the venue and chapel though there's some of us here today they're going to go and we have people in our minds right now that lord you know that we want that we know you want us to move closer to in gentleness help us to do that empower us we pray use us and we'll deflect all glory to you in christ's name and we say together amen, amen.